0: for they are blameless. This ends the reading of God's word. Kids, three through kindergarten, you're dismissed now to the little landing. Thank you, Howard. The train engineer got my message. Come by as soon as we say sounds of roaring waters. We have a pair of Andrews to give thanks for next Sunday. Pastor Andrew Ross will be preaching next Sunday morning. My wife and daughter and I will be, Lord willing, visiting our son and his wife in Michigan next week. So pray for Pastor Andrew Ross as he ministers the Word next Sunday morning. Pray also for Andrew Florestano, as Howard mentioned, as he ministers the Word next Sunday evening. I'm going to end the service this Sunday by asking today by asking those of you who are going on the Lakeview Christian Academy trip to Reynosa, Mexico, to stand where you are, and we will commission you out at the end of our service today. We'll pray for you and bless you as you go to serve the orphanage for a week's time down in Mexico, so be prepared for that. Would you pray with me once again? Open to us, Revelation 14, 1 through 5, dear Lord, and give us the reward that is ours from this passage. Strengthen our hope in you, our joy in you, our anticipation of seeing you and being with you. Though the world is degrading and fomenting violently against you and against us, it will all be worth it when we are finally at home with you. And your victory has been achieved on our behalf and to vindicate your glory. Stir up a zeal and a love and an excitement in us by this passage. Don't just instruct us, Lord, but transform us from one degree of glory to another into your image by the reading and studying of this passage, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why is Revelation 14, 1 through 5 here? Why, after all the blasphemy and the anguish, the lying, the violence, the persecution, the terroristic threats against Christians that the devil is foisting upon the world and and deceiving the world, why, after Revelation 13 and all of those dragon and beastly things are going on, does John, by the Spirit, put this paragraph, 1 through 5 of Revelation 14, next? It's a jarring change. The answer is to show the reward for all of those enduring the tribulation that those who endure to the end will be saved. Those who endure to the end will be saved. Jesus said that in Matthew 24, 13. John called for the endurance of faith at the end of the first beast in chapter 13, verse 10. Endure, 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 says the message of Jesus and the whole rest of the Bible. Even though there's opposition in the schools and online and in politics and, and within your extended family, and even struggles within your own heart or struggles among even circles of friends or between churches, Be, even though there's a struggle of a spiritual nature against powers of darkness and against the world and against our flesh, endure, endure. That's the message John gives. In Revelation 13, and Jesus gives in Matthew 24, how do we endure? Revelation 14, 1 through 5 is held out as a reward for those who endure. This is the reward to the believer, your vindication. Think of what awaits all who believe in Jesus Christ. Ponder with me what's being taught us in these five verses. Every betrayal will be exposed. Every lie corrected in the truth every slight will be acknowledged and honored, every wrong righted, every chaos reordered, every bruise healed, every death exalted, every battle won, every secret conversation from the rooftop shouted, every potential fulfilled, every goodness enjoyed, every relationship at peace. When Christ vindicates his church and comes back for his beloved bride, while the world spins wildly out of its own control but firmly in God's, with blind hatred, foolish pride, and vile impurity, believers both gather as the redeemed company in heaven and fight with holy resistance here on earth both at the same time. Maybe that's the hardest concept to understand in the book of Revelation you will see yourself in Revelation multiple times dwelling in peace and quiet sovereignty under the Lamb in heaven. At the very same time, you battle for righteousness here on earth. The Christian life isn't just gutting it through the difficult times now. It's dwelling in the heavenly places where we are now seated with him in glory. That's why Paul says the Christian life isn't just joyful or sorrowful. It's sorrowful yet always rejoicing. John holds this paragraph out inspired by the Spirit so that we would aim at the reward That we would order our families and our homes and our parenting and our friendships and our ministries and our jobs and our relationships and our thinking and our hearts and our words and our actions and our emotions so that we are prepared for the day when the resistance is over and we will be dwelling together in His presence in all purity, joy, and peace, finally home. Therefore, We endure because Christ endured. John holds out this precious, holy, delightful, infinitely wonderful reward with God in heaven so that we would say of all of our suffering now, it was worth it. These momentary and light afflictions are working for me, eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that was said by someone who was lashed and beaten and threatened with death and starved and hated, shipwrecked and endured all manner of dangers, imprisoned. These momentary and light afflictions. Do you have any afflictions? Do you call them momentary and light? Do you have any hardships? Do you have any pain within your family? Do you have any pain in your past? Do you have any pain in your finances or in your relationships? Do you have any pain in your identity of yourself? Are you struggling with figuring out who you are? Does your sexuality provide difficulty and pain for you as it seems to for so many today? Are there spiritual attacks in your life that make you experience pain? Are there difficult ways for you to describe it so that when someone asks how you're doing, you just say fine because you just don't have the words to explain how things really are? Every momentary and light affliction God permits to His people, He uses as a labor, as a workhorse, as a servant. Every light and momentary affliction is working for me, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Afflictions have the capacity like a stent of enlarging, enlarging the flow of, of God's glory and goodness into our lives, broadening and widening the vascular flow of the means and the, and the conduit by which His glory and His goodness and His strength and His faith and His power is poured into us. That's what hardships do. They enlarge our capacity for God. In Revelation, there are sevens everywhere. Seven seals, seven trumpets... They recapitulate each other. They tell the same story from a new perspective. We're about to see the seven bowls in some weeks from now. All three sevens tell the same story. God unfolds judgment in a mercifully slow and patient fashion in order that all who would repent might have patient opportunity. Seven visions occur in this interlude of chapters 12, 13, and 14, which we're in. Seven visions where John introduces these visions by saying, I looked and I saw. You can count them up in 12, 13, and 14. How many times John says, I looked or I saw? God is giving to John seven visions. God loves things in seven. Why? Because seven means his plan is perfectly unfolding. Nothing has failed. Nothing is going awry. Nothing is going to the right or left or being hindered or thwarted. God's plan because of the sevens is unfolding, which is exactly why we saw Everything that the enemy steals from God and then uses for his evil plan to counterfeit God only ends in 666. Who could shout out what that means? Loser, loser, loser. Love it. Before this final set of seven bowls that we will see in just a few weeks, the Spirit gives John this three-chapter narrative to restate the gospel. The beautiful woman, the faithful people, dressed in light, gave birth to the sun. The dragon wanted to devour the sun, but God scooped the sun up to heaven to reign with an iron scepter. And so the dragon hated the woman and pursues her even into the wilderness where God holds her and protects her. Though there's trial and pure purification, there's also delight and safety in the wilderness. This is the gospel story restated again. The dragon's so angry that he decides he's going to continue to pursue the woman. And so he raises up a beast on land and a beast over the water. And they are counterfeits, a Trinitarian counterfeit, a phony trinity on display. Taking all the power and strength that God permits and allows them to have and misusing it for evil purposes to counter all God's goodness in the gospel, in the exaltation of His Son, the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and in the outpouring of His true Holy Spirit. Yes, there's a devil, says the reformer Martin Luther. Yes, there's a real devil. Yes, there's a real devil, and we battle against him. But remember, says Martin Luther, he's God's devil. In the middle of this dark, blasphemous, violent, murderous, deceitful Time filled with false prophesying and signs meant to deceive and demonic oppression, God says, Saints, you're secure. Church, I've written your name in my Lamb's book of life, and because I wrote your name in my Lamb's book of life, you won't compromise, you will endure. Revelation 13, 7 and 8, also the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe, people, and language, and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone will worship the beast whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. We who are in Christ are utterly and totally secure in Him. We will not compromise with the devil even if we fail temporarily. We repent and return by His grace. Praise His name. We will not finally capitulate to the devil and evil because God promises to keep us. He wrote our name in His book and He will preserve us by His keeping power. By His writing our name in His book, He secures us. So some might ask, If God has us secure, my name is written in the Lamb's book of life because I'm a believer. Why do I have to endure? Why not just coast? Why not even capitulate? Why not get the mark of the beast on my forehead and hand so I can buy and sell and not have to endure starvation in my family? I'm going to be saved in the end anyway. Just at that 11th hour, 1159, right at the last minute, switch, ha, ha. Cheated you, devil. You thought I was one of yours. I'm actually one of God's. I just kept it hidden the whole time. Why not? Why not? Well, the answer of Scripture is this. My statement, my summary, I'll show you where I get it in the Bible. When you become a believer, when your heart of stone is taken out and a heart of flesh is put in its place, When the Spirit of God begins to dwell within you, as as is true for all Christians, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, says Ephesians 1, 12 and 13. Then you become a new creation. Now you love new things and hate different things. You love God and Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel. And you want to bear the fruit of love and joy, peace and patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You want To give all the glory to Christ and not to yourself. And you want to love others even as you love yourself. And you want to dedicate all your life for the cause and honor of the glory of Christ. And it's that which the devil hates so intensely. And therefore, the call in Revelation and the whole Bible for you and I to endure. If you're a true believer, it shows up. It's not something that can keep hidden. Listen to the way one of the most important passages in the Bible explains this very truth. Romans 8, Paul writing in verse 13, "'For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons.'" by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see the transformation that happens? I've got a brand new spirit, and I talk to God as my Abba, Father, and I am led by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh and giving way or encouraging or blessing or pursuing the deeds of the Spirit, and thus will live By this, God is glorified in my life. Verse 17 goes on, If children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer, even to the final tribulation, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And there it is again, being glorified with him. That's what's being held out to us as a reward. That's the incentive for our endurance. That's the goal for which every believer aims. The Lamb's book names believers who will not compromise with the devil because they've been made new creatures. And even though it might mean their immediate slaying or a long-term starving, it means that they and their families will say, this will all be worth it. The Bible doesn't ask you to imagine how hard it is to be a Christian in Iran or China or North Korea. The Bible doesn't ask you what it's going to be like for you to suffer tribulation someday in the future. That's not what the Bible asks. The Bible, by the Spirit of God, simply says, is God's Holy Spirit dwelling within you such that you turn to Him and say, Abba, Father, I do love you. Help me love you more. I do believe in you. Help my unbelief. The Bible says, look to him and he will be your strength on the day of your trial and of your tribulation. John is giving a glorious vision of heavenly reward assured to all believers as an incentive for endurance. He means for us to say, yes, I suffered. Yes, I watched my beloved ones suffer all for the name of Jesus Christ. But being reunited together with them, loved ones, and by the power of God in the presence of Jesus Christ, my living King, makes every sorrow worth it. Let's see from this passage how this five-verse passage not only tells us what that reward is, but awakens a joy and a desire for that reward in us as we study. It's not just going to hold the reward out and say, there you go, coming someday, long, long way away, far away, can't touch it now. That's not what's happening. This reward is going to be given to you now as your blessing for this very day. We'll do it with three questions. Here's the first one. Who engages in the business of heaven? Who engages in the business of heaven? Verse one, then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. You see how everything the devil was doing was a counterfeit? The devil raised up a second beast. That was the lamb. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion, the Bible says, stood the lamb, Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, the lamb of God, the ruling and reigning one standing there. He's not rising like the other beasts. He's not fidgeting. He's not fearing and pacing. He's not sweating. He stands there in quiet, sovereign glory on Mount Zion and with him. 144,000 who had his name, the name of Jesus Christ, and his Father's name on their foreheads. The Father and the Son are united, and their names are on our foreheads. The mark of the beast was nothing but a counterfeit. Gloriously jarring us is this regal vision of the quiet and ruling Lamb. In the midst of vile chaos below, having been sacrificed, now standing in glory is our Mighty King, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, reigning on Mount Zion. The false prophet was the phony lamb. Here is the genuine lamb. And the Mount Zion, what does that signify? It signifies all of heaven. All that Jesus bought and owns, that's what he stands upon. Listen to Hebrews 12. What it will say, and what I want you to notice, is that the physical earth of Jerusalem and Mount Zion... On the other part of the globe is a shadow pointing to the true reality. Listen to Hebrews 12. For you've not come to what may be touched like rocks and a piece of real estate, a blazing fire, a darkness and gloom, a tempest, and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. That's a reference to Israel's past and the giving of the law. Verse 24. They could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. This is the Mount Zion of Revelation 14. You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn. That's you and me. This is including you and me. The assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That word enrolled is a reference to the Lamb's book. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Just think about it. The invitation of this passage is, all my struggles are going to be over someday, and God's going to complete his work in me, and I'm going to be among the company of the firstborn, the redeemed, and I'm going to be perfect glorified can you imagine what it would be like for you to live for one second perfectly glorified that sounds too good to be true to me but here it says that we will be this way verse 24 and will come to jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of abel which still speaks out of the ground The earth, the physical Mount Zion, is just a shadow pointing to the heavenly Mount Zion where Christ now stands. And who else is with him, the 144,000? They have the Father's name and the Jesus name written on their foreheads. This is the collected church throughout all time and all places. All those who refuse to let the beast mark them because their heart was given to the Lord. Now the mark of all true believers is Jesus written large across me. The mark of the beast was just a counterfeit of the Father's love that marks His children. Back in Revelation 7, we saw the question, who can stand before the Lamb? And the answer of Revelation 7 is the 144,000, the saved, the believing ones who have been sealed as servants of God. That's how they're described in chapter 7, verse 3. It's a picture of this worldwide universal tribe, tongue, people, and nation gathered together in worship around the throne and worshiping Christ. Listen to Ephesians 1.11. In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope... You see that first... That, re- that relates to the firstborn in Hebrews. It'll relate, relate to first fruits in our passage. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So, back in Revelation 7, 144,000, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, worshiping around the throne. Here again in Revelation 14, 1, we have the 144,000. Why that number in two places? Here's my answers. First, I answer that by saying the numbered heavenly army of God is signaled by this 144,000. They are the the army of God. Every time God numbered his armies in the Old Testament, it was in the 1,000 uh, number frame or paradigm. Here, this is 12 tribes of Israel, believing Israel, 12 apostles. Together, that is 144, maximized to perfection in 1,000. And we have the global transtemporal church gathered, mighty as God's army to fight and resist against evil on the earth. I invite you to consider how your prayer life, your fasting, your worship, your naming of the name of Jesus, both privately and publicly, your ministry connection, your involvement here at this church might be a stand of resistance. If you get married under the name of Jesus Christ, that's a stand of resistance. If you simply pray at a restaurant or raise your children in the love and admonition of the Lord, or if you conduct your marriage or friendships or your job life by the guidance of God's word, you are among the mighty resistance, the holy war waged by the 144,000. Second reason why this number shows up in Revelation 7 and here in chapter 14 it's a sweet comfort that nobody drops out, nobody's lost. The same 144,000, the same number, and the same people make it all the way through. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Through all the battles, through all the temptations, through all the tribulations, and the lies, and the blasphemies, and the dying, and the violence, none are lost. Not one drops out. All are preserved faithful to the end. This is your future you. You are among this 144,000. Live in wonder. Live in the glory and the beauty and the power and delight that you're going to make it. You're going to be there. You're going to also. Battle through the resistance now, but you will one day, and in in a mysterious, hard-to-understand way, you're there right now. Battle from this armory of durable hope, power, and delight, beautiful glory, and unstoppable faith. Battle from this now. Take on every conversation and every thought and every temptation in the absolute confidence that I've got a place for my person, my identity, myself in the 144,000 who worship around the Lamb's throne. Live backwards out of Revelation 14 and ask, does everything I am doing serve the cause of my unwavering movement toward my role and reward in heaven? Second question, what engages the business of heaven? What engages the business of heaven? Verse 2, and I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Verse 3, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Here again, the 144,000 are mentioned, and verse 3 says, These are, of all the people of the earth, the redeemed ones. Clear as can be who this 144,000 are. But notice the singular to the plural. Verse 2 is singular. Verse 3 is plural. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters. Back in chapter 1, we know exactly who the voice of the roar of many waters is. It's the vision of Jesus. Christ himself has burnished bronze feet refined as a furnace and a voice like the roar of many waters. That's the sound of of thunderous waterfalls and waves crashing upon the ocean. That's the sound of this singular voice in verse 2. But it's also sounding like loud thunder, and we're told many times in Revelation that the voice of God is the sound of thunder. So it's no surprise that we would read in Hebrews 2, Christ says of himself, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I, Christ says, I will sing your praise. And in John 17, he said to the Father, not only have I made my name known to, your, to the ones you gave me, I will continue to make it known. Who is the lead worshiper of heaven? Whose voice opens up and it sounds like thunder and many roaring waters? Christ is the lead worshiper of heaven. Christ is singing the worship of himself. Christ is singing the worship of his Father and the Spirit. Christ is leading the 144,000 in the worship of himself. Christ is the great worship leader in heaven. May he be the great worship leader in this room as well. Christ is glorifying himself with a voice that sounds thunderously beautiful and gloriously powerful. And then it says, verse 3, the switch in plural the next voice John hears is a hundred and forty-four thousand, and these hundred and forty-four thousand are singing songs in harmony and in following the leader Christ. They were singing a new song before the throne. They're singing to God. They're singing before the four living creatures and before the elders. This is the scene in the throne room of heaven, and they're singing a song that no one has the capacity to learn except that 144,000, the song of the redeemed when we finally get there. Some songs are just too penetrating. Some songs are just too vulnerable and and real. Some songs are just too sweet and true and you feel like a hypocrite singing them. Have you ever come to a song and you've stopped because you just don't feel like you have the emotional or spiritual or intellectual ability to keep on singing? That's happened to me many times. Just think of yourself among the 144,000 with perfection in your spirit, perfection in your emotions, perfection in your mind and in your body, and you're able to sing this new song that Christ leads us in, this song of glory to the Lamb and vindication against all his enemies and salvation for every man, woman, and child across the tribes, tongues, and nations that he has called to himself. Surely the song is Nothing other than Revelation 5, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on earth and they continue worthy as the lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom and might, honor, glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The song of the redeemed is first the song that Christ is infinitely worthy, but the added song in Revelation 14 is, because he's worthy, he won the battle for me. Michael won against the dragon in the heavenlies because Christ won the battle for me. Christ overcame every barrier to my salvation and he made sure that I would make it faithful all the way to the end, joining that 144,000. Not only is he worthy, praise his name, but I'm redeemed. He is worthy, I'm redeemed. Boy, I wish I could write songs. That would be a great title. He is worthy, I am redeemed. What keeps you from loud bold public praise of the lord jesus christ in singing kill it whatever it is if it's because your voice is weak sing with a weak voice if it's because you don't want to be a phony then get your heart right instantly before the sun goes down today so that when you're so that your singing won't be unauthentic but true if it's because You don't feel like you sound very good, then just forget about what you sound like. You can make a roar, you can make thunder, or get a guitar. It says that they're playing harps, they're harping on their harps. That's what it literally says comes from the Greek word kitara, which is the word we get guitar from. It was a 10 or 12-string instrument that was used in the temple by the priest. This is the priesthood, the holy priesthood, the, the royal priesthood of God, the holy nation, the chosen people, standing with all their guitars, 10, 12-string. I, I couldn't even play it. And yet we will be able to play it. And, and all the languages will rise as they learn the new song. Uh, all the languages of, of Russian and Ukrainian, of Chinese and of... of uh, All the Iranian and Korean languages, all the Mexican and Spanish and English languages, all the African languages, all the languages dead and long gone, all the languages yet to be invented, all the languages around the world today will be represented according to the the promise of Scripture. And there will be this mighty throng of worship. Whatever hinders you from bold, clear, I love to sing full-throated about Jesus Whatever hinders you, kill it. Why? Because this is where you're going. This is you. This is your future selfie in eternity. Last question. How is heaven's business engaged? Answer, in full glorified holiness. In full glorified holiness. Don't misunderstand verses 4 and 5. This is a description of the 144,000 after they've been fully glorified. It's magnificent. It doesn't mean it has nothing to do with you today. It means it has everything to do with you today because God's already beginning this work from one degree of glory in you right now. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Don't let yourself become discouraged by these statements of glory and perfection. They are for the future, but they are for us to pursue right now. This is the endurance. It doesn't mean people married are defiled. It doesn't mean women defile men. It doesn't mean only men are redeemed. None of those misunderstandings of verse 4 are true. It, this verse, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins, means they are like the virgin who gave birth to the son, they are like the virgin Christ purchased and calls his bride, his church in Ephesians 5, they're like the wife or the bride that God saves for himself in the Old Testament repeatedly. This is the people that Christ will marry at the coronation and the marriage supper of the Lamb to come in chapter 19. These are the ones he has called to himself. Whatever may have its impure talon in your heart or soul of this impure Babylonish world around us. Tear it out, no matter how much it hurts. Ready yourself to say, with revelation, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Do whatever it takes to tear away the hooks of impurity and idolatry from you by repentance. Be undefiled now as God helps you. You will be perfect then. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. This means the redeemed church is fully obedient to the Master. They are eager to follow Him as the Lamb and the King of Kings wherever He leads. It is their identity, their joy, their very life. While on earth the church militant honors and obeys the commands of our Master and we keep in step with the Spirit, When we are in heaven, we will go with him wherever he goes. We will be, as it were, lambs following the lamb. Perfect, glorified, beautiful, without sin. We're on the path toward that even now. Devoted to the triune God, that's what these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits means. That first fruits for God is devoted, the best the very best of all of the earth that God has called to himself, made best by the cross of Christ, the ungodly that God has saved and transformed by his grace. This is the first fruits, the ones devoted to God. Later, what follows is the harvest, and oh, it's a sobering glimpse. Let me read from chapter 14, a few more verses down, starting in verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud seated on the cloud with one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earthly earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. The firstborn, the first fruits, the first and best are for God. The sickle is for the rest of the harvest. Leading us to say now, Whatever I do, in word or deed, I'm going to be fully devoted to God as first fruits. Whether I drink or whether I eat, I'm going to do all to the glory of God. First Corinthians 10.31 And finally, They're truth-tellers, blameless because they always tell the truth. No lie was found in their mouth. All the devil can do is lie. All the beasts do is lie. The third beast or the third member of the Trinity is the false prophet. All he does is lie. But here, no lie is found in their mouth, for they are blameless. They carry on the character of their king and lamb from Isaiah 53, Jesus Christ. No deceit was found in his mouth, verse 9. All these are the nature of who we are as the church becoming the 144,000, fully glorified. Live this way now and say, I am going to endure. This will help me endure, and the reward is my great incentive. I'm thrilled by the testimony of a man named Steve Saint. Some of you may know him. He was six years old when his dad, Nate Saint, and four other missionaries from the Wheaton College area were made martyrs in Ecuador in 1956, January, because they were sharing the gospel and the love of Christ with the Wa'orani people. Nate Saint and his wife and his young son, Steve, were missionaries for just a short time with the rest of the team in the jungle outpost. And they knew it was very difficult, they thought they were making progress. But when there was a squabble among the tribe over uh, relationships and and difficulties that they had no knowledge of, couldn't understand the language, it over-erupted into throwing of spears and the killing of the Caucasian missionaries who were bringing nothing but kindness to the Wa'arani. Steve St. grew up, and he actually beloved and befriended and led to Christ, one of the men who was actually part of that killing squad. And he and his family began to call him grandpa, and that man actually came to the United States. Steve tells this in his biography and in a talk I just recently heard from him at a theological conference. And he tells of the pain and loss of his father and the loss his mother went through. He tells of the loss of his own experience losing his dad. But he also then goes on to tell of the tragic loss of his young daughter when Steve and his now wife, Jenny, were parents to a teenage girl named Stephanie. She had a headache one night, and she went to bed at an an inordinately early time, and mom and dad, Steve and Jenny, went in and they laid hands on her, and they were going to pray for her head, that her headache would go away. And she instantly had a cerebral hemorrhage and died. Steve spoke at his daughter's funeral. He spoke about loss. He spoke about the difficulties of his life, and he spoke about the fact that God has this wonderful, painful, horrifically glorious way of redeeming the losses we experience and causing them to work for our good. These momentary and light afflictions, God is working for our good. Steve said during his talk that I recently heard, the loss of my dad, the loss of my daughter, the other losses I've experienced in my life, if they can be dedicated to Christ, they will all be worth it. May I say, may you say, may we say together as a church, no matter what losses the Lord calls us to experience or the losses you already have experienced, may we say if they can be redeemed for the cause of Christ, they will all have been worth it when we stand around his throne. If you're going to Reynosa and you're here today, would you stand right now? Anybody going on the trip? Stand up. Thank you. Good. Look around and, uh, and those who, see, who are seated near those standing, would you move toward them and lay a hand on their shoulder, please? A hand on their shoulder, a hand on their arm. We're going to commission these three. And I'm going to ask just for a few minutes for prayer to be happening simultaneously for all three of these individuals. So if you're standing near them, start praying. Pray briefly. Let others pray around you. And then after we've prayed for a few moments for these three, I will pray for all three. Let's go to the Lord right now. Begin to pray.